eight-week series now on just the core convictions of church at Bergen. And the reason why we're doing that is because about a year ago, maybe some of you guys don't know this, uh, we were in the Doubletree Hotel up 17, and uh, there was only, I don't know, maybe about 100 of us. And then here we are uh, over a year later in this place, and uh, we're upwards of, of about 300 people. Uh, so a lot of new, new faces, a lot of new people. Uh, so the elders really felt like it would be healthy and helpful uh, to just, just go over the, the core values and specifically we like to say the convictions because that's what we're willing to, to die for and to live for. Uh, and there are four of them. First one is the gospel. Second one is the word of God, specifically the scriptures, uh, this book here. Uh, third is discipleship. Fourth is uh, mission. And we're taking four weeks to go over the gospel because it is the most important conviction that exists um, Paul the Apostle said that it is of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. He said in Romans 1 that it is the power of God unto salvation. And so if you get this wrong, you get Christianity wrong. This message, the gospel, is the essence of what Christianity is. It is not rules. It is not regulations. It is not obedience to certain standards. It is good news about Jesus Christ. And so Pastor Mike about two weeks ago, uh, talked about the glory of God uh, and how God created all things for his glory, that he loves his glory, the passion of God is the glory of his name. And he created all people and invites them into worship and praise and exult in and enjoy his glory. This is not selfish of God. It is incredibly loving for God to invite us into the very thing that satisfies us most deeply. And then last week, uh, he gave us, Pastor Mike led us into the, the bad news, uh, that all people have sinned against this God and rightfully deserve hell. Uh, we, have, we went over the doctrine of hell, and uh, I'm sure those of you in growth groups had some, some good discussions, uh, and it was a weighty topic, and I get the privilege of preaching on the death of Jesus Christ, uh, and that the gospel has is two sides of one coin. It is the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which will be coming next week. Um, the goal today is that everyone in here uh, would have very intense and passionate and deep love for Jesus, uh, for what he has done for you on the cross. And these emotions that glorify Christ cannot be generated by our own efforts, but the Holy Spirit of God alone um, Grants, that, grants us that a power. So uh, would you please pray with me before we dive into the word? Father, we thank you for Jesus, for the rock that he is, for the righteousness that he is, for the life that is found in him, for the fullness of joy that he grants to poor sinners, helpless sinners. And we are here, Lord, we are here to enjoy Christ. We are here to marvel at what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Help me, help me to preach with as much clarity, power, and joy uh, as you will grant. Help us to uh, feel the weight and the beauty and the wonder of what your son did for us. In his name we pray, amen. We're going to be in Romans 3, book of Romans. It's a good book. We're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 22 to 26. If you do not have a Bible, we have a big uh, stack of Bibles in the back. If you want those, you can 
take one. If you do not own a Bible, that is free for you to have. You can take it, enjoy it. We're going to start at the end of verse 22. At the end of verse 22. Uh, And this paragraph, some people argue that this is the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. Uh, It is very dear to my heart. There is so much theological goodness for us to enjoy. Uh, And I'm just going to say it to you um, because it is such a precious paragraph. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So we're going to start with the bad news, okay? Can't really know the sweetness of the good news without knowing the the darkness of the bad news. Verse 22, for there is no distinction. Another translation that is, there's no separation. And, And contextually, this is talking about Jews and Gentiles, but the relevance for us today is that God makes no distinctions. In his eyes, there's no such thing as separate but equal with all races. All people all tongues, all nations, all tribes, all skin colors, there is no distinction in this one particular aspect. What is that? Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. that The word all is key. Everyone has sinned. Everyone knows this. Everyone is aware of this. If you have been raised in church at all, you have probably heard this verse before. But the phrase that I want to dig into is the phrase, fall short of the glory of God. When I was growing up, I typically heard this this little phrase described the following way. That God's glory was like a target off way up into heaven, and we, by our own efforts, like like a bow and arrow, had to draw our bow and try to shoot that target way up in heaven. The problem is, our human efforts have fallen short. The arrow did not reach the target and it fell short. The problem that, that I always had with that is, is this. So because I can't shoot my arrow far enough, I go to hell? Uh, that, just, that just always sounded strange to me. It always sounded um, not fitting. And so the key to understanding is, is the word, the phrase, fall short. It literally means to lack, to be without, to have, to not have something anymore. It's the same phrase used, you guys know the the story when Jesus turned water into wine, and he's at the wedding in Cana, and the phrase in chapter 2, verse 3, John 2, verse 3, says, when the wine ran out, that's the same Greek word, they had no more wine, it was gone. Mark 10, 21, that Jesus confronts the rich young ruler, says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the following commandments. He goes, check, done that, what now? And Jesus says, one thing you lack. That word lack 
is the same Greek phrase. One thing you are without. One thing you do not have. So in what sense does sin consist of me not having God's glory anymore? And the key is found in just two chapters before. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, go to chapter 1 of Romans, verse 22. This verse is talking about all people. It's talking about all people. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling animals, mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is why all people stand before God as guilty. Because God in his unfathomable generosity has given us his glory. He has offered us himself through all that he has made, all that he is in Jesus Christ. And rather than relish him, rather than enjoy him, worship him, cast all of our affections upon him, we have traded God for something else that God has made. And that is why we stand before God as guilty. Now, to illustrate, an illustration that I prefer to use to portray why this, this particular exchange is so awful, is so heinous in the eyes of God. I want you to imagine a man who wakes up in the middle of the night and he walks out of his house and goes to his car and he drives to New York City. It's really late, so no one's up, no one sees him. And he gets out of his car and he walks down a back alley and he's holding something in his arms, like this. And he walks up to another man, he can't really see anything, and he hands what is in his hands over to this man. And it's his daughter, his one-year-old precious daughter. And the man is the lord of a sex trafficking industry. He hands his daughter over. And then the man gives him in exchange a brand new iPhone. And he walks away and starts playing with his phone. If anyone has children, anyone who trades his daughter for an iPhone deserves to be hanged. Why is it that we feel such deep moral revulsion at the thought of a man exchanging his daughter for an iPhone? It's because the value and the worth of his daughter far exceeds the value and worth of that silly phone. And last time I checked, according to Isaiah 40, 17, that child, all people, compared to God, our value and worth is as nothing. Listen, it'll be up on the screen. All the nations are as nothing before God. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. 
when you compare all people in, in planet Earth, you put them on a scale to see who is more valuable, people or God. There is no comparison. It's as if you put nothing on the other side of the scale. The moral revulsion you feel at the man who traded his daughter for an iPhone should intensify to an immeasurable degree when we realize what we have traded for God's glory. If a man deserves to hang for trading his daughter for an iPhone, what must we deserve for trading God for things that are less than nothing? What must we deserve? And that's why Pastor Mike preached on hell last week. That's the bad news. You guys ready for some good news? Okay. <laughs> that's my assignment is good news. Let's get into some good news. Verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Romans 3, yeah, back at Romans 3. Justified by his grace as a gift. This word justified is, you must understand this word. This word is at the heart of the gospel. It is a legal term. Shout out to all you lawyers out there. It is a legal term for when a judge slams the gavel and declares a convicted criminal, not guilty, but righteous according to the law. And according to this, God does, we do not do this for ourselves. God does this to us. And you notice it's by his grace as a gift. This declaration for guilty glory traitors is free. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it. You cannot, you cannot contribute anything to it. God does not ask that you put 20% down. Goodness gracious, who in North Jersey has 20%? You have to buy a shack for $350,000. Who has 70 grand just floating around under their couch? God does not ask, he doesn't even ask that you put 0. .0000 1% down to get this declaration. In fact, if you attempt to contribute to it, to put God in some sort of scenario where he's obligated to declare you righteous, you lose it. The moment you try to earn it, you've lost it. It is totally free. Now here's the question is one of the most important questions of the day. How on earth can God look at me and declare me righteous when in fact I am not? Who does this God think that he is, that he can do this? Especially in Proverbs 17, 15, it'll be up on the screen. He who justifies the wicked, look at the very end, is an abomination 
to the Lord. Okay. So if, if I'm sinful and I'm wicked in his sight and he justifies me, is God then an abomination to himself? The only way that God could not be guilty of some sort of legal fiction is if I am in fact righteous. But I'm not. This is why about a year ago, a lot of you guys know this, I used to be a Bible teacher at a small Christian school. I was teaching on this exact same thing. I wasn't teaching, I was preaching. Seriously. (laughs) True story. (laughs) I once had a mom come in and say, I feel like my Bible teacher is a preacher, not a teacher. (laughs) Anyways, where was I? Um, There was one time I was teaching this exact same thing, and this girl is looking at me with the most perplexed look on her face, and she says, so how do you get righteous? She got it. She got it. He can't do that because I'm not, so how do I get righteous? Friends, that, not even joking, that is the most important question you could ever ask. How does a sinner get right with God? Period. That's the most important question. That's the riddle of the universe. How does a guilty sinner get right with a holy, just, majestic, infinitely glorious God? The answer is in the first part of verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe it's given to you through faith Paul the Apostle said it this way in Philippians 3 indeed I count everything as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law that is my obedience but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Romans 5 describes it as a gift of righteousness. In other words, God in his scandalous grace. Y'all, the gospel is scandalous. It is, there's literally a Greek word in 1 Corinthians 1, it's scandalon. The gospel is offensive. It offends Pharisees. It offends self-righteous religious people who think they can earn their way. Who does God think he is? It offends people because God in his scandalous grace credits, uh, counts as mine. The fancy word is imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who has never sinned, the one whose record of obedience was impeccable. That is credited to me as a gift. And it's at that moment when I have that in my, how to, it's a gift, I receive it, all of Christ, not some, all of it. It's at that moment that God can slam the gavel and say to Mike McKinney, guilty sinner though he is, blameless, righteous. And my son, come into my arms. And this is why, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but exactly 500 years ago this month was the Protestant Reformation. 
Um, Martin Luther made a famous statement that describes the wonder of justification. And he used a Latin phrase, simul justice et peccator. What does that mean? Simultaneously righteous and sinner. At the same time, I, am, I stand here a guilty sinner, yet at the same time clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not my own gift given by faith, righteous before God. Tim Keller says it this way, pastor in New York City, you are more sinful than you could dare imagine and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. This is the essence of the gospel. I was, I was going to go on a little about five-minute tangent on the difference between Catholic views of justification and Protestant views of justification. But just for time's sake, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be writing a short article for the church, and it's going to be called, Is There Really a Difference? If the gospel is, is, if the core of the gospel is justification by faith, and if this is what the Protestant Reformation was all, if there was a split because of that, what's the difference? It's going to be online on the website either tonight or tomorrow. You are free to read it. You could email me questions. Hopefully that will be enlightening and helpful for you. But there's more. Verse 24b, the second half of verse, keep going to verse 24. justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, this justification happens through redemption in Christ. It's, you get it through redemption. What is redemption? The definition of redemption is release from bondage or captivity at a cost. And the cost is called a ransom. A price is paid, at which point the prisoner can be set free. That's redemption. And it is in Christ Jesus. So if redemption means release from bondage, what were we in bondage to? In Galatians 3.13, Paul gives us a very clear answer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. God's curse hanging over us, building up. Christ released us from that. Romans 2 verse 5 describes it this way. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment would be revealed. You know those little storm clouds? You know like cartoons, little storm clouds? and They like walk around the storm cloud. You guys with me? Can't really see your faces. Is that, you guys know, you guys know that? A little storm cloud, and they walk around it. Everywhere, everywhere the person goes, the storm cloud is. Every single one of us, at some point, if you're a Christian now, if you trusted in Christ, it's gone. If you are not a Christian, it is still there. A storm cloud was over our head, hanging, building, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this, essentially, Christ set us free, pulled us out from underneath that. But how does he do that? How does Christ release us from bondage to that judgment that we rightfully deserve for our sin? Verse 25 is the answer. 
whom God, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Notice. Notice who forks out the ransom. God does. Whom God put forward. God is the one who provided the price for your redemption. He's the one who paid it. And what did he pay with? He paid with the blood of Jesus. And what did this blood accomplish? It accomplished propitiation. Lots of big words today. (laughs) Propitiation. Another glorious word of the gospel. It's an offering that removes or takes away wrath. It's a pr- something is given which takes care of someone's anger. It removes it. It releases it. It satisfies it. Here's an illustration. Pretend that you have a 2010 Porsche, which I know that you guys all have Porsches. 2010 Porsche, and your friend comes to you and says, hey, I met this girl, and uh, I have a 2000 Honda Civic, and it's green, and the paint is chipping off. That's my car. Um, I love it. I'm going to drive it till it blows up. Um, so they come to you. I, don't ha- I, I got this, this piece of junk, and I got this girl. I want to impress her. Can I borrow your car? Sure. Here's your car. You can take my car. The guy's a fool. He shows off, and he, t- he totals the car. The guy and the girl are fine, and he destroys the car. It is tarnished. It is impossible to recover it. Pretend you don't have insurance. Pretend you don't have insurance. Car is totaled, gets thrown into the dumpster, and the, and the friend comes to you and says, hey, uh, so, this thing happened last night. I totaled your car, and I'm sorry it's gone. What? You know, what? Ah! You, you will rightfully get angry. The wrath that flares up in your heart from him destroying your car is right. It is good. And then he goes, hold on. Wait. If you look over there, I purchased a 2018 Porsche for you. Here are the keys. Chill. <laughs> What happens to your wrath in that moment? It's gone. Come here, buddy. I love you, man. I was never mad at you. (laughs) Now, the reason why this illustration is not well, it's not good, is because the person who broke the car forked out the payment. (laughs) The gospel is the opposite. We broke God's car right? We trashed his glory. We should have paid. But we had no money. We had no endless line of credits. In fact, we were in debt. And God says, see over there, my son on the cross? You see that one right there, the Lamb of God? I'm going to count that payment as yours. I ain't mad at you. I'm not mad at you. You're mine. I love you. 
This is what happened on the cross. The thing that kept the wrath and curse of God hanging over us was our sins. We were still in our sins. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, unless you believe in me, you are still in your sins. You will die in your sins. So how do we get out from underneath the wrath? Someone else must take our sins. And wherever there is sin, there is wrath. And if Christ took our sins, where does our wrath go? It goes on Jesus. Back to the storm cloud thing. It was building up underneath me. Jesus did not just pull someone out from underneath the storm cloud. He pulled them out, grabbed their sins off of their soul, put them on his heart, and he stood underneath it. And because he paid the price, because the wrath is gone, you are redeemed from that, and then God, by your faith, he lavishes you with the Son's righteousness, and he declares you just. Now, what must someone do to get this? Look at the last phrase. To be received by faith. To be received by faith. Faith, that's it. Faith. Nothing more, nothing less. That's it. Faith has no merit. Faith has no value. It's just, it's just open hands of a beggar on the side of the road who has no hope. Faith merely lays hold of Jesus. That's it. And it's at this point, I, I would like to, it's past Thursday night, my wife and I had our growth group. Growth group, shout out to you guys, love you guys. Um, we were talking about faith. Everybody knows that you're justified by faith. If you've raised in church, you know salvation is not by works, it's by faith. But somewhere in there, we have turned faith into a work. We have said, unless you really have strong faith, you don't get Jesus. Unless you have no doubts, unless you are totally sure, you are rock solid in your faith, God is not going to love you. But if you got weak faith, I don't know. That turns it into, look at me, look how strong I believe. Which is why so many people just struggle in their faith when all the while, listen, it is not, you got to hear this, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the person your faith is in that saves you. And his name is Jesus. And he's mighty to save. So how much faith do you need? No more than a mustard seed. How strong must that be? No stronger than a child. You need faith like a mustard seed. And faith like a child, weak. Why? Because it makes Jesus look so strong. It glorifies him. It makes him look like the great savior. But when I stand before God, I'm not going to say, I held on tight. God's going to say, no, 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 no. I held on to you, son. And we will all say that, who believe in Jesus. Last, last question about the text. Why did God do it this way? Why did God, 
Why the bloody cross? Why the whole? That's just so intense. Why did God do it that way? Verse, end of verse 25. Second sentence, verse 25. This, Christ on the cross, right? This was to show God's love. Oh, wait. No, it doesn't say love. That's weird. It says righteousness. You would expect it to say, this was to show God's love. But it doesn't say that. Christ on the cross demonstrates God's righteousness. Had God done something that would make me question his righteousness? Why would he feel the need to show that he's righteous? Has he done something that makes me think that he's an unrighteous God? Why did God do this? Because in his divine forbearance, his tolerance, his self-control, he had passed over former sins. He He just passed them over. He just forgave. I forgive you. So why is it, why would God simply forgiving someone make him look unrighteous? Why would that make the heavens question God's righteousness? Let's go back. Maybe you didn't like this illustration. Let's go back to the man who traded his daughter. Let's finish the story, okay? So he's got his phone, right? Um, And he gets home, and he opens the door, and he walks in his house, and his wife is standing there. And she says, I know what you did. She says, I know what you did with our daughter. How could you? And he immediately feels the guilt, and he, I'm sorry. I screwed up. I screwed up. Forgive me. What would it say about the wife if she said, you know what, babe? You seem very sorry. I forgive you. It's okay. What do you want for dinner? What would it say about the wife that she does not value the worth and the honor of her daughter? In fact, that she despises it. What would it say about God, friends, if God just forgave sins? It's okay. It's all right. It would communicate to us and to the universe that God does not take his own glory very seriously. In fact, he does not care about it, and it's okay to do it. In other words, it would make God look unrighteous. So what did he do? He sent his son the second person of the Trinity, to the earth, and he clothed him in flesh, and he gave him the name Jesus. And Jesus willingly went to the cross, took all the sins of the world, and said to his Father, show the universe how seriously we take sin. Show the heavens how much we honor the glory of your name, Father. Pour out your wrath and show the world that you are a righteous God. And he said, it's finished. Thus, vindicating his name, showing that he is in fact a righteous God. And in other words, God has made a way 
for a sinner not only to be right before him, but for God to remain righteous in doing it. He, he put in his infinite wisdom, he's constructed salvation where any, the most heinous, vile man or woman can come to God and be forgiven and God can still say, I am a righteous God, don't you ever question it. Look what I have done. Look what I have done. My righteousness is not called into question. And this person is now made a son and daughter of God. In closing, because this is the glory of the gospel. That's it. He's made a way for a sinner to be made right with God while himself remaining righteous. Both work out perfectly, which is how the verse ends, right? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just a couple questions application. Number one, do you care about the way that God forgives you or that he simply forgives you? Let me ask it another way. Do you rejoice in the gospel only because it is the way that you can be forgiven or because God has forgiven you in such a way that upholds the glory of his name? Let me ask it another way. Do you love the gospel because it makes you look valuable? Or do you love the gospel because it makes Christ look valuable? I once, I once heard there was a young man who was teaching the Bible to about 500 people one time, and he said in front of everyone, if you ever question God's love, just remember, you were worth dying for. And I remember sitting there and thinking, okay, that's the opposite of the gospel. It's because I wasn't worth dying for that he still died. I wasn't, I didn't deserve it. I wasn't worth the crucifixion of Christ. While we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. It's because we weren't worth dying for that makes the gospel so scandalous. It makes us want to sing amazing grace. There is a way to preach the gospel that makes God look central, and there's a way to preach the gospel that makes you look central. The cross, has, the cross was not ordained by God to show me how awesome I am, but to show how awesome he is. Second question. Are you hesitant to come to Christ to be forgiven because you think you have dishonored him too much? Are you worried that you have strayed too far away from Jesus and you've gone down a path too deep, so deep that you think that if you were to come to Jesus, it would be unjust for him to forgive you? you must realize that he has done it in such a way that it does the opposite of what you're worried about. It actually glorifies him all the more to come. In fact, 
If you remain in unbelief, if you refuse to come to Christ, that is what the, that's the only thing that dishonors him. No matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how far you have gone, he has worked salvation so that if you come, he is just and righteous still to forgive you. And if you remain in your unbelief, that is what is, un, that is, what is wrong. So come, please. You can be justified literally this second. Last question. Have you lost your amazement with God's glorious and scandalous grace? Maybe you have grown cold toward the cross and lost sight of the wonder that God would justify you, that God would redeem you, that God would give Jesus as a propitiation for you. Have you lost your ability to sing amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Have you lost the ability to sing that amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Have you lost the ability to sing why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. If that is you, we have great news. We're going to sing two more songs. The first one is in Christ alone, obviously. Obviously. And the second one is man of sorrows. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where his love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. We're going to sing. Sing a new song. Sing afresh. Sing your soul out. Sing to the one who died for you. But he did not stay dead. I'm going to try that again. I need some help. But he did not stay dead. That's next week. Pastor Mike's going to preach on the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing grace, this amazing love that you have given to us as a gift in Jesus. How can you do this? How can you do this? Lord, help us to marvel at it. Help us who have already placed our faith in Jesus to now maybe experience it, a new outpouring of the sense by your spirit of his love for us. And maybe some people in here for the first time receive Jesus, all of Jesus. Take away all excuses, Lord. Take away all excuses. There's no, there's no good excuse. The pathway is cleared. Jesus' arms are open wide, and they are free to come. So help us, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would help us to sing with all of our hearts great joy of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. In his name we pray, amen.